It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Typecast, where we look at the archetypes that underpin characters in the stories we love. And today I am joined by Helen. Hi, Helen. Hello, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Lovely to have you with us again. Well, you actually haven't been on Archetypes. I before, haven't have you? been on the Archetypes, no, but no, I've been on plenty of the others. Exciting. So. You've yes, been on really plenty exciting. of the others, indeed. Well, it's lovely to have you with us. And today we're going to talk about the lovers archetype, um, which is a really interesting one. And we've got a couple of really fascinating films to really sort of drill into the archetype on. Um, so archetypes as a concept was more broadly introduced by the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, and it's played a big role in understanding the recurring patterns in human psychology and storytelling. And it is archetypes generally, and, and the lover archetype is one of the most captivating archetypes um, because it represents the deep longing of romantic connection, passion, and the pursuit of idealized love. This archetype, transcends cultural boundaries and is a fundamental element of storytelling and what's interesting is while it's been sort of brought I guess into more popular culture to be talked about by Jung as an archetype the lovers as a concept and as a construct has been around for a lot longer than that which we'll dive into in a little more detail so Helen tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are around the lover archetype and what appealed to you about talking about this particular one today? Uh, well, I I think I, I guess I jumped on this one because I wanted to be really provocative. I think the most <laughs> the most obvious thing to have talked about would be characters from like a rom-com or classic love story. But I really wanted to challenge myself to think about this archetype in a way that stretched beyond the obvious so, you know, like love, it takes so many different forms. And we often find ourselves when we talk on these podcasts, particularly, I, I know we, we, you and I have talked about it a lot about how, you know, women are becoming very frustrated and bored with being stereotyped, always seeing stories about, you know, boy meets girl, girl swoons, the end, you know. And I think like women, love is a complex creature and it's important to see all of its complexity and bring that colour into our lives by, you know, sort of that representation. And it just, it, it goes way beyond just Romeo and Juliet. And I've deliberately chosen these two films, one being from the female perspective and the other from the male perspective, because I think it, it's it's quite interesting to have that balance to show that, you know, love is very typically placed in the, you know, in the emotional band of women and not so much in men. And it's, I think it's really important to see 
what that how that love transpires across both genders but also not in a typical you know boy meets girl kind of way Mm. And that's very true because the two films that we're having a look at in response to The Lover Archetype are Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan and Michael Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Neither of those are what you would call traditional love stories and both of them have very specific viewpoints around how they take this idea of the lover's archetype. And I think this is this is what's really exciting for me about this chat today because I think you're absolutely right. We do tend to talk in a fairly linear fashion about the about so the romanticized love and all the good things about it and yeah the we'd lean into rom-coms and and romantic romances and romantic dramas and all those things that are very traditional but I think it's really important to have a look at this breadth of of not just what that archetype was but what that archetype is becoming because that's where the interest is and I think that's where the really great stories will continue to come so um I'm excited to talk more about this with you, Helen. Um, but before we dive into this analysis of these two films and talk more about um, the archetype, I thought it would be good to have a little bit of a chat about, well, I'm just going to chat at you actually, so, <laughs> about the I'll history of the archetype. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Grab a cup of tea. <laughs> so because I thought it might be good for listeners just to get a sense of, of where the archetype has come from in terms of its history. And it is in many ways a very timeless and universal concept that has left a really strong mark on storytelling throughout history. Um, it does, on it, traditionally it was all about the embodiment of love, passion, the pursuit of idealised relationships, but it has evolved over the centuries really, even though it started back with myths and legends and it went through, you know, through literature as we know it, it's classical literature particularly, but then it's becoming more diverse as it moves through time. So the roots of the lover can be traced back in to ancient mythology where we started out talking about love, desire and longing and it was really woven into the fabric of our culture and our um, society and, and our groupings, community groupings really. So if we think about things like Greek mythology and the tales of love and desire that come from Eros and Psyche, for example, that portray who portray the power of love overcoming obstacles and trials. There's Eros, the god of love, who falls in love with Psyche, a mortal woman, and their story unfolds as a testament to the transformative power of love. Roman mythology had their own version, so their Eros equivalent was Cupid, whose arrows would make even the mightiest of gods fall in love. So it's very much about this traditional view of romanticised love. But even in things like Hindu mythology, there's some a pair of divine lovers called Radha and Krishna who symbolise the profound and, and really passionate connection between the individual, sorry, the individual soul and the divine, which is really interesting. So their love story transcends the earthly realm and looks at as a, at a more as a more allegory for spiritual love and loving. So a bit of a shift there from that sort of fairly traditional view of romanticised love and passion. Um, we see we see the lover's archetype come through in things like the Bible, um, in the Song of Solomons, which is so, or Song of Songs. So it's um, where the lover archetype comes up and we get a celebration of romance and passionate love between bride and grooms and vivid imagery and metaphors about in the intensity of romanticised love. In Islamic mysticism or Sufism, the lover archetype 
takes on again that a more spiritual dimension. So if you think of Sophie poets like Rumi and Hafez, who often employ um, ideas of divine love and longing in their poetry. I love a lot of Rumi's poetry. It's really beautiful. So, um, But the lover archetype there becomes more of a symbol of the soul's yearning for union with the divine sort of rather than that more traditional. Of course, we see the lover archetype pop in in Shakespeare plays from Romeo and Juliet, Antony and Cleopatra, Midsummer Night's Dream, um, in medieval romances like Tristan and Isolde, um, Arthur- and Arthurian legends. It's, you know, it comes back again and again. But then it takes this shift in the more recent history into films. And um, we start to see it creep in. So in the early early 1920s, so as that silent era of cinema moves into kind of the golden age of Hollywood, you start to see some films pop up where we get this lover archetype showing itself. So things like in The Phantom of the Opera from 1925 and The Sheik, a film in, from 1921, that feature, again, going back to this passionate and idealised romantic relationship notion. But in order to really captivate the audience and really get them engaged in in the story. We move through a little bit into the golden age of Hollywood, into the 30s to 50s, and this lover archetype starts to play a more central role in in films because we start to see not only iconic romantic films, but we start to see iconic romantic film stars. So think about films like Gone with the Wind from 1939 and Casablanca in 1942. So these are epic love stories that still have hold true they're still cinematic landmarks for us as are the actors and the characters in those so there's a, it was a really big shift to sort of centralize those characters and bring them into our into our conversation and you know and stories and characters that still are in our minds as classic films we moved a little bit then into the 50s and 60s and we see this sort of post-war period and rise of romanticism so if you think about that sort of golden age and that they then that shift into more um more fun more light-hearted romantic movies so think about Audrey Hepburn movies Roman Holiday 1953 Breakfast at Tiffany's 1961 emphasizing the allure of love and passion although Breakfast at Tiffany's I would probably argue is um has some much darker shades as well um but then we move into the 1960s and 70s and we have this transformation where things start to get more complex and I think more interesting and certainly more realistic. So if you think about films, classic films out of the 60s, like The Graduate, 1967, brilliant film, really looks at a whole different side of love and a very unusual story for the time. Think about Bonnie and Clyde from 1967, these unconventional relationships challenging traditional romantic conventions that have come through those earlier decades of cinema history. And then into more recent times in the 80s and 90s, we saw, of course, the rise of the rom-com and all of those films, which we've talked about at length in um, lots of other um, chats. But um, but there was this, again, it sort of became more centralised, more traditional romanticised, more about the fun side of love, the lighthearted side of love. Um, rather than diverse narratives. It was actually became a bit less diverse, a bit more homogenised, um, but more into that sort of um, romance and comedy genre mixed. But then um, as we then move into the 2000s of the present, I think we've had a really big shift. And this is, I think, where these two films that we're going to talk about today really 
come into their own. So if we start to look at 21st century and how the lover archetype has shifted, we get a really interesting reflection of the changes in societal attitudes to love and relationships. And a classic example of that is a film like Brokeback Mountain from 2005 um, and a film like Moonlight from 2016 where they look at love in the context of marginalised or stigmatised communities from back then. And then, you know, you've also got this really interesting shift that we're seeing more and more of, particularly at the moment, particularly with AI. Um, the digital age has really influenced the portrayal of love. And you think of the film Her, which I really love as a film from 2013, which looks at the relationship between humans and technology. So there's a really, really interesting shift, I think, going on. And we're starting to see these sort of these broader views of love, these, you know, we've got um, subgenres like chick flick movies and LGBTQ plus um, romances have emerged. So really embracing the breadth of the, the lives that we are living, which I think is, um, is fascinating to see. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that we should particularly talk about these two films because I think these really both in different ways reflect um, some big shifts in society and how we are looking at this lover um, as a more progressive type of archetype in in uh, in filmmaking. Are you all right, Helen? Are you still awake? I'm still here. Am I, have I forgotten <laughs> okay. to blink? Sorry. <laughs> Thanks I'm for listening still- to that big <laughs> diatribe. But I thought I'd give a little bit of pot of history. In, no, right. no. So, it's fascinating. I love it. It's interesting, isn't it? Like yeah, when you yeah, think really about some of those films, you go, wow, okay, yeah, that we really have shifted. Yeah. Um, and it is when you look at it, I think, in a, through that sort of historical lens, you, you go, oh, gosh, yeah, we've made some fascinating changes. But also really interesting, I think, that we've still got films like Casablanca and Gone with the Wind that still have these places as iconic films, irrespective of the big shifts that we've gone through. But anyway, so let's talk now about some of the character traits of the archetype. So before we talk particularly about these couple of films, let's have a chat about some of the specific things that we find uh, character traits associated with the archetype. What are some of the ones that you have noticed? Well, I I think the obvious ones are things like, you know, sort of passion and romanticism. Sacrifice features a lot, I think, um, in in romantic drama uh, across mediums, not just in film. Um, And, you know, obvious things like commitment as well. But then there's there's some less obvious things that you might think of that sort of come down to. Uh, spiritual con- connection and duality is something that I'm I'm really keen to explore in both of these films because I I just think it's it's fascinating the idea that you're what you what you perceive and what is real is 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 where there's conflict and where there where that conflict comes from and I think that's that's a really interesting pinch point in this archetype um, and uh, you know sort of you mentioned how you know there there's a desire for connection there that's that's a real that's a real clincher because you, you you can cross an emotional bond, but you can't cross a physical bond. So, you know, that plays into that one so much. Um, and yeah, just like, I love the idea as well that, that the vulnerability is, is just hiding nestled in the middle of all of these archetypes in, in this particular archetype. Um, but it's just nestled there in the middle. And it's, it's one that will especially if you're thinking about your character and how they might react um, to a situation or a person that vulnerability is that really raw part of themselves and understanding that I, I don't 
think you could you could do this archetype without your character having a vulnerable sort of side to to this this lover's archetype I think this is one of those ones that is non-conditional you have to have it you have to you have to have the vulnerability and the fascinating part of vulnerability is it has a it has a flip side too doesn't it that vulnerability can often um can often present itself with a whole bunch of other attributes that are not particularly nice so vulnerability that is not served or vulnerability that is threatened can often turn into jealousy and you know a whole bunch of things that we do see in romantic lover archetypes in films where perhaps their the sensitivity the passion the desire for connection the vulnerability all those things um because of this because they come from a place of vulnerability um can sometimes be really threatening can't they to the character they can put the character under threat so it can we can have all these other attributes come out like jealousy and rage and things like that you think about things in classic stories like Romeo and Juliet and you know what can sometimes come through with with the vulnerability so there's a even though it's really important there's a darkness that can come from that if it's not handled well because of the possibility of heartbreak you know the possibility of loss that fear of fear you know it really becomes comes through from that so that's really interesting too and we see a little bit of that coming through in the films that we're going to talk about i think is the the flip side of vulnerability when it's not served or not met with equal love maybe maybe yeah so yeah what about things like um uh sort of we talked about this idea of duality does is this really important Do, you know how important because we're talking about the lovers as a plural archetype um what do you think about the idea of the lover as just a singular character not not two just a single character that has these attributes is that do you think that's with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time (gasps) no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Something yeah, th- that we see? I, th- I think so. I think I think you see it. You, you could attribute that to, um, you know, sort of somebody who's discovering themselves, maybe somebody who is, uh, you know, learning to respect and appreciate who they are. You know, that almost, if you want, you could pair this with the coming of age genre, the, you know, the, or, or anyone that's kind of going from from one personality to a new one. You know, they've suffered a major breakup. They're having to choose a new career. You know, you there is that that kind of transition there and um what makes most i think where where most of us find a struggle is uh there's a term isn't there sort of mind the gap mind the gap between your expectation and reality and if you are if you don't foresee that i guess it's like anticipating a birthday party and then when it comes it's actually a rubbish but the anticipation was greater than the actual event so you know that that minding the gap 
between that expectation and the reality is something that you can play out again and again across genres, across characters, across whether this is, you know, between two people, three people, a group of people, one person, an idea. I think that minding that gap, which is ultimately what duality is, is uh, there's so much potential in there for for conflict and for resolution. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, intensity is another one of the attributes. And I think depending on how strong, how, how, how high that level of intensity is, often changes the outcome of that, doesn't it? You know, where, where you've got great intensity that, you know, may not be met or, be, or may not, again, be served with that gap, if you like. It can sometimes, things can sometimes turn into tragic lovers, can't they? That can, that can be when the story turns from romantic to, to, more negative I guess if you like that's it, um, that kind of, that's, of that, that suffocation and uh yeah that over loving mm. loving to death almost um is is something and it's quite often that tends to be more in familial love um and you tend to see it you know sort of suffocating mothers or um you know like we have in Frozen with the two sisters um that is a really interesting relationship that they have that it represents the lovers entirely, but just not lovers in a romantic sense. These are lovers in the sense that they are sisters and they, they're very much connected. And um, Elsa ultimately, you know, overprotects, doesn't she, and suffocates and sort of stunts her sister's, uh, Anna's ability to experience everything that she wants to, creating a naive mm. character who gets herself into trouble. So, um, mm. yeah. Yeah. And it is quite common, I think, in the mother figures, you often see that. And, you know, to an extreme, you would see that where, you know, I've seen films about women with mothers with like Munchausen's, you know, where they they harm their child out of this weird need to love them to pieces. You know, it's sort of over love. It's, there's, there's some real extremes there, I think, in that, in this space. Um, in fact, there's some real extremes, I think, in in this archetype anyway, in terms of whether it's, yeah, again, you know, too much love, um, misdirected love, obsessive love, um, you know, overly vulnerable love. There's a whole lot of sort of ways it can flip. But we do tend to concentrate on the more romanticised, happy ending love, don't we? You know, traditionally that is where this, in you know, particularly in films, is where it tends to go and in literature as well. But, um, yeah, I, personally I'm really interested more in the ones that, that kind of look at sort of, other sides or darker sides or less less um less positive outcomes in a way that you know less um expected outcomes I think which is where you and I have talked about that idea of women not wanting to just see these romanticized you know girl gets the guy everything's okay kind of thing you know that's it's really it's really had its day I think well yeah certainly has for me um, but anyway <laughs> But um, so on that then, let's have a look at, so we've covered off a, a bunch of different um, um, attributes there. So things from passion, desire for connection, sensitivity, vulnerability, sacrifice, intensity, you know, this this um, duality, this need for connection, all these sorts of things. I think there's some really interesting things there. So let's have a think about that as applied to your first choice of film, which is Black Swan, which is a fascinating choice, I think. Directed by Darren Aronofsky, gives us, portrays this lover archetype through the character of Nina Sayers, who's played by Natalie Portman. 
So the film revolves around Nina and her story, this incredibly dedicated ballet, ballet dancer who becomes so consumed by her pursuit of perfection in the role of Swan Lake in Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. Um, and as the story unfolds, we witness how this lover manifests, this lover archetype manifests in her character. So this doesn't fit a traditional, you know, male, female, you know, heteronormative, romanticised love archetype as a story. So what appealed to you about this film um, particularly from in terms of the lover archetype? Uh, well, I think Nina, uh, she ticks a lot of boxes in her desire for connection and ultimately for sacrifice, passion, romanticism. Um, but it was ultimately, I think it was the quest that she goes on that stood out for me as the strongest characteristic. Uh, and she's very driven to be perfect. And in her role as the black swan, she is severely lacking. And it's that is heavily played on that she is emotionally and sexually immature and it's her naivety that holds her back. And I, I think like this particular example is about sexually sexual awakening, coming of age, and there's a duality here between her and her alter ego and that desire to allow that to surface. And it also represents a, com a really complicated love between a parent and child. And reluctantly, this then becomes her quest. Overcoming this naivety is what will help her achieve her perfection. And sort of in the background, all of this is being fueled by her mother's desire for perfection and the need to meet her expectations as well. So there's several angles that this archetype provokes. It's not just the sense, that traditional sense of, you know, um, you know, her falling in love with someone. She needs to awaken herself, but also navigate the relationship she has with her, with her parents. Mm. And it's almost like her... If this, if this was to be a pair of lovers, it would be her and her art, wouldn't it? It's like her and dance, like her need to, to her pursuit of perfection is her, it's almost like her pursuit of pure love with this, this thing that she does. You know, it's, it's like that's the other presence in the relationship in a way, isn't it? And all the other, I mean, there's all these other levels as well. You write the mother and then there's the relationship or sort of weird relationship with the with Thomas or Tamar and, um, and also her friends. But ultimately it's about this sort of singular drive to achieve this goal of perfection of this craft, which is really, you know, it's like a it's a calling, isn't it? It seems, you know, it's it seems like it's higher than it feels like it's stronger and bigger than everybody else's in that in that trip. Even though they're obviously they're all elite athletes and they're all trying to achieve the same thing, but there's something about the drive that she has that seems to be above and beyond, and and it's overlaid with her naivety. I think you're right. Um, sort of both. Um, sort of emotional and sexual, but there's something about her that really, you know, pushes her way, way beyond what would be considered to be sort of a probably a normal scope of, you know, uh, behaviour really. So how do you think we talked, so I guess how do you think that the lover archetype contributes to her character development? So because she does have this interesting arc, it's a, it's a tragic arc, um, how does this how does this archetype in, impact her her character development? So the, I saw it actually that the sticking point 
Fanina wasn't the white swan because she performs that perfectly and her struggle really lies with the black swan and something that I I just I absolutely loved about this film was that colour features really heavily so Nina's dressed in white at the beginning and through variations uh, you know throughout the film she kind of uh, goes through variations of white and grey and then grey and black and eventually to black and the characters that represent sexuality and desire and confidence and her alter ego, they all wear black. And it's such a powerful and subtle device. And it's telling us that she can't perform the black swan until she transcends internally, overcoming her mother's manipulative control and maturing emotionally. And we're reminded of her innocence right at the end when she wears white again and dies. And all of this is foreshadowed when we're introduced to the plot uh, of the, the of the the ballet of Swan Lake, um, and that she needs love to set her free. And I think that that love ultimately comes in sort of uh, you know in the form of of loving herself, of finding that she is enough, that she has everything in her that she already needs. And again, it comes down to you know sort of minding that gap her expectation of playing the black swan was that she could just, you know, uh, perform it perfectly like she does the white swan. And actually she can't, she needs to really dig deep, become vulnerable and transform. And she physically transforms as much as she emotionally transforms, um, which I, I loved. I just loved that thread uh, throughout this story. Yeah. And I did, I did like the way I felt that, her grappling with the black swan role was very much um, there was a real sort of parallel between her relationship with Tomar, I think it is, um, and um, but I liked the way that the that they chose not to um, make those two end up having sex because I kind of thought that's what, that's the way it was going to go. You know, at the beginning you think okay. Her, she's going to go the, undergo this um, rite of passage. She's going to sleep with the artistic director. He's pushing for it. He's kind of, you know, they felt like there was this subtext of you don't know how to play the black swan unless you've been deflowered. And I thought we we're going to go down that path. And I was really disappointed thinking that that was a path we were going to go on. So I was really glad we didn't. And I thought it was really terrific that we focused more on, it was less about him ultimately, because that could have been, you know, in line with those more traditional narratives that we're used to that, that follow that romanticised thread, that would have been what, what would have happened. She would have, you know, had a relationship with him, happy ending, they become the power couple, blah, 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 end of story. You know, really very traditional and very boring, almost like a romantic romantic comedy almost but not comedy but you know that romanticized notion so I was really pleased that it wasn't and it was more focused on her internal journey um yeah and I thought you know I thought that that kind of worked really nicely did you feel that or did you did you think yeah yeah did you think that they they should have (laughs) no no absolutely not and I loved the the fact that she fought back when she when he kissed her and she bit him that that was what made him go I respect you for that. And that is the kind of attitude that the black swan would have. Tease me and then, you know, do that and remind me of my place. And I I thought that that was a really, really good thing, especially as, you know, uh, Nina's mother gives us an awful lot of idea that, you know, how she got to to be, uh, you know, a, a 
she was a, a failed ballerina, well, not a failed ballerina, but she left her career to have Nina and therefore then continues to live it out through Nina um, and is protecting her from having that same experience. So she's reliving her life back through Nina and keeping her almost <clears throat> infantilized. And um, I, I quite liked that it wasn't actually a man that awakened her sexually, that it was a woman. It was Lily ultimately, or the idea of Lily was enough to set Nina free. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like, I like the respectful boundary they kept there between that, that, stereotype I think would be fair to say especially as it must be quite frustrating if you're in that industry and it doesn't operate like that and you're repeatedly media is repeatedly regurgitating this idea that if you're in the ballet or you're in any performative arts and you want to succeed then you have to sleep with the boss the end and that must be really frustrating to to be continually depicted in that way so I, I really liked this fresh look on the industry Agree. Yeah. And also that male character too, because it's so, it is another trope of the A type character, male character, you know, has his pick of the women, you know, is sort of morally lacking, but still comes out on top. You know, there's a, you know, so it's nice to sort of not have that either, I thought, which was good. Um, So, okay. So let's talk a little bit about in the ways that the lover archetype sets the stage for Nina's unraveling because she does unravel um and I guess the idea of you know what are your thoughts about the idea that the lover archetype is this double-edged sword so there's really profound experiences as we talked about a little bit earlier and potential turmoil and sort of tragedy how does her nature ultimately contribute to this sort of descent and this so how do you see that lover archetype coming through into her descent progressively I do firmly believe that this is a coming of age sort of genre this film is coming of age and with that Nina is experiencing these intense emotions for the first time and she's being exposed to ideas and situations that are way more mature than she can process and that conflict of her feelings just smashes into her immaturity and her inability to navigate the adult world like everyone else can and I think she's just playing a role she's just she's using the black swan almost to sort of um, navigate through this complex uh, experience because she's the star all of a sudden she's the center of attention she's no longer just the kid on the in the back and um it, it, yeah just it, it's the worst kind of method acting though isn't it to actually physically become the black swan but i i i, I love that that there is this slight mental breakdown you know that she becomes an unreliable protagonist we don't know what we're seeing is real or not real or in her head or you know is that actually what happened we're continually being reminded that her head is just chaos so by the end we just you know we just are very passively accepting what we see because we can't guess um, so I I really love the way that it unsettles us as an audience into understanding mm. it's very unreliable. And it's very much in line with that idea of, again, the dark side of passion, which is this drive that she has in pursuit of perfection. So if you think about, you know, her ideal of this idea of love, this, you know, pursuit of perfection, and her desire to, her unrelenting desire to make sacrifices for it. And it pushes her physically and emotionally 
or right the way through the film. So, so we do have this unreliable narrator character. We aren't sure of what the truth is. But it feels like it aligns really closely with that pursuit of this unrelenting, obsessive pursuit of love. Do you think that kind of stacks that it's sort of because it feels it's obsessive, isn't it? Like she is obsessive. She is obsessive, and I, I think that yeah. that is it's something that's been ingrained from 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 her mother, and it's it's again it's that that infantilizing, it's that suffocating relationship, that really toxic um love between them that has generated this and without that what have we got we've just got someone who wants to be the perfect ballerina and we have no reason to understand why and instead of it just being a typical story of you know personal growth to success it's a really painful raw unexpected journey um, that ends in tragedy and it it makes this story it it just gives it so much of a reason to exist rather than it just being another story about a white girl who um wants to be a ballerina and is amazing and lands the part and is famous forevermore you know yeah gives us a lot more depth than that doesn't it so what do you think like in what what thematic elements do you think of from of the lover archetype um are brought into the screenplay of Black Swan? What are the sort of themes that you felt came through that are in line with this archetype, Kelly? I, I think there were some really detrimental themes that were uh, around jealousy and envy. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And those really provoke Nina and they drive the plot forward. First, we're presented with with that through her mother's feelings towards her daughter's youth and her career. And then later with Nina towards Beth and Lily. And, of course, this idea of coming-of-age sexual maturity and that link, again, with the overall plot of the ballet. Uh, and the idea in the ballet, which I think Tamar says very clearly at the outset, is that love will set the white swan free. And that is ultimately what happens. She is able to dance in the most perfection once she lets go and embraces that, uh, you know, that all everything that the black swan represents, this this sexual desire, the, this coming of age, this, this self-realization, this independence, all of this kind of self-love. Once she's achieved that, she's set free and she's set free physically and emotionally. Um, so yeah, and dies. And dies. And dies. Hard to dance perfectly with an internal injury know, like that. Though, amazing. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so tell me, I didn't ask you this at the beginning, and I probably and I absolutely should have. So you obviously really enjoy this movie, is that right? Yeah, I, I did really enjoy it. I I know when it came out, there was a lot of controversy about the choice of actors and whether or not they should have used um, professional ballet dancers to tell the story. Um, and I think that that is something that we see coming out, uh, you know, in 
in almost every film where there's a representation of a, a demographic, whether that's a professional demographic or, you know, physically or racially or anything like that, you know, even right down to that isn't an English actress. Why is she playing Jane Austen? You know, so um, I think those questions will always come up. But I also think, you know, could the film have been just as successful with a with a uh, with an let's say an unknown actor, uh, a professional ballerina in that cast in that part, would it be the same movie, or would we need to see some familiar faces? But um, you know, so I, I like that 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 film does remind me of that. Uh, it's always good to think about. Um, but I I just I do love films that just mess with your mind and just make you try and look at things in such a abstract way and just consider something different there's so much creativity in this film and it's you know what it's getting harder to come up with original ideas and looking at things in a really conceptual way is going to be the only way forward because only we know our perspective and only Nina could tell that story about you know her descent into madness and I just I, I love it mm. it is um it is much much more interesting than a than the more obvious approach to this story, isn't it? That very linear, you know, girl joins ballet corps, girl competes with others for the main role, girl gets jealous. You know, that's your girl ultimately gets you know, gets there kind of thing. It's like oh, it's a bit boring. So having this, having that inner journey really pulled through as. You know, as a really strong narrative about character arc was really, really fascinating. I found it a little bit too much. On I was going to say, um, do you think that 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 sort of crazy outlet, you know, does that narrow your audience down to you know only people really passionate about this sort of genre, or do you think um, that there is a balance you can achieve with high concept and um, and and getting a wider audience? Well, I guess for me it goes back to the question of representation, doesn't it? Because this was a screenplay written by a man telling a woman's story and I felt that it was a very, I thought it was a very overly dramatic. I thought there was there were points to pull back from an emotional point of view. I thought it was like 10, intensity 10 all the time and I felt like it was, I felt like I could almost sense that it was a man thinking about it from a woman's perspective do, do you know what I mean and I could be wrong I could absolutely be wrong and I'm very happy to be shouted down about about that but I just felt it was really uh, so I'll give you an analogy and this is a really weird analogy right I went to see Oprah Winfrey when she was in Australia and doing her outdoor concert thing I went so I was lucky enough to get a ticket and it was intense so the emotional intensity of that day was full on, right? It was really full on. And there were, you know, we were up dancing one minute and then we were crying the next minute because of the Geshet on. We were dancing the next minute and laughing and then we're crying. And I was like, whoa, this is really, like there's an energy here that's really almost too much for me. <laughs> and I felt this movie reminded me of that because it was like full on intense. I, I wanted to pull back. I wanted moments of quiet. I wanted moments of okay in amongst the the decline and, you know, I just wanted a few moments of pause and I wanted a few moments where she was where she was okay for a second. So we kind of got a sense of of the, you know, we felt the highs when they came and we felt them when, you know, it, it, yeah, I think we lost a bit of the subtlety of the, of the emotional 
range because it was at the peak all the time for me. I know that was a weird analogy. I'm sorry about that. And if anybody else has seen Oprah Winfrey and loved it, I'm deeply apologetic, but, you know, it is what it is. So um, that's that. So on from that very strange um, analogy to a very interesting, a very different film, which also looks at the lover archetype. So we'll shift now from Black Swan to Michael Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which arguably takes a more introspective and poignant approach to exploring the lover archetype. So the film centres now around the character of um, Joel Barish, which is played by Jim Carrey, and um, Clementine Krasinski, played by Kate Winslet, who undergo a procedure to erase the memories of their failed relationship. However, as the plot progresses and they relive their memories during the procedure, we get to see a bit of this lover archetype and how it's expressed. So tell me conversely, how what drew you to this film from the lover archetype? Because this is not one that I would have chosen naturally for the lover archetype either. So tell me why you chose this one. Uh, well, as I've already mentioned, I'm a big fan of films that mess with your mind. And I, I, I just I like to know, not know what comes next. And I think the more you know about screenwriting and storytelling, I think it's harder to hoodwink, to be hoodwinked so it, it, and be a passive viewer. So it's really nice when you end up becoming a passive viewer. And I, I did find with this film that it was one that I took very little notes because I was immersed entirely in it. So. Um, that was uh, one of the strong points of it. But I, I also like the surreal landscape that this particular uh, presentation provokes and how much creative interpretation can be played with within there. And we're never really too sure what we're given is reliable. So again, we've got another unreliable protagonist. And um, a bit like Black Swan, but uh, probably more defined, this is a film that's in two halves an external point of view and an internal one. And it's reflective and wholesome. And, you know, that from, from an arching point of view, it's really wholesome. And I love the idea emphatically that there are two people who are so right for each other that so much so that they gravitate back towards each other in the end or the beginning, depending on which way you look at it. And this leans not like beautifully into the spiritual uh, characteristic from this archetype and again I think it would be very tempting to go oh spiritual well that clearly means religion and we need to you know focus on that and it absolutely isn't these are two people where their their atoms are just attracted to each other it doesn't matter what their conscious is aware of they will always keep coming back together and it's that that is something that it, it just just transcends all stories doesn't it the idea that these people are meant mm. to be together regardless of what they actually mm. want or think yeah it's and it's funny because that didn't come up necessarily as or the idea of fate I guess um didn't come up as a as a quintessential characteristic within the lover's archetype but it comes up a lot doesn't it in these stories you know the idea of fate and providence yeah all of those things and I think it's one of the reasons that it, this film gives you, you know, again, if you think back to that sort of more romanticised ideal of the archetype that was used, it does play into that, but it plays into it in a really interesting way. 
And there's something really sort of profound about it and something that sort of transcends, you know, a whole bunch of really obvious traits of, of what, you know, of the idea of being with somebody or a, a connection with somebody and that duality thing. Um, yeah, which is which I really liked. And I, I love this movie. It's um, I love the whole approach to the film. I thought the whole... Um, you know, non-linear narrative, the whole way that they've looked at this subject matter um, is fascinating and really, really original. And so tell me a little bit about sort of specifically these two characters and how you see, so we get, we've talked a little bit about the idea of this sort of, you know, they're baited to be together and that becomes clear at the end or the beginning. Um, how do you feel that from the two characters' point of views? How do both of those characters of Joel and Clementine kind of embody the archetypes or or how does it give shape to their actions and, and decisions through the story? What do we see coming through from those characters through the film? Well, I think, well, so Joel and Clementine are opposites and Clementine is an open book. She knows what she wants and she's able to ask for it. And you could argue that she's more aware of who she is than she thinks she is because she says several times that she's she's trying to work out who she is. And uh, I think she actually, you know, knows more than Joel does, who just kind of goes through the motions of his day and doesn't really have any any definition in his life other than he goes to work, he comes home, that's it. And, uh, you know, so when, when you compare that to Joel, who never utters a word really in the first half, um, uh, there's nothing about his backstory, there's nothing about how he feels or what he does. And, you know, that is the clinching point for, for Clementine. She wants more connection. She's, she's seeking that, that connection, that vulnerability, and he's not giving it to her. And they, they you know, as I mentioned a, a moment ago, they, they do share this spiritual connection and it goes beyond their memory of being together. And in that, there's, there's a duality in how Joel recalls their relationship versus the reason that Clementine ghosted him in the first place. And what actually happens to them at the end of the relationship, which we get to see played out through his perspective of memory, um, where she, you know, leaves him ultimately. And in the end, they have to eventually accept that they both have to embrace the pain and the pleasure. You know, he has to be more vulnerable uh, to, to, to make this relationship function. And she has to accept that he is not going to be as free and as open as she is. So there is this kind of sacrifice that goes on between them. So they, they again, they tick a lot of the boxes of this archetype, um, which is always really interesting, I think. Yeah, they really do, don't they? And I think and I think that idea about, you know, all of those things you touched on, the, the idea of the vulnerability, the acceptance that one is maybe never going to be what you want in, you know, on the other hand, there's an, there's an element of acceptance and there's, uh, you know, there's something bigger than the frailties of it, if you like, which is what makes it, I think, really relatable and makes us really empathise with the characters. Do you feel like, and this is a weird comparison, do you feel like these characters are more relatable than Nina from Black Swan? Mm, that is a weird question. Um, I think... Um, I, I kind of, there is, I think because Nina is so, uh, in, so infantilized, we can empathize with her because we can see she's a grown woman 
and she is traversing this world on the edge. She's she is skirting around the edge of this adult world and just getting by. And the moment that she's thrown in the middle of it, she is then met with all of these things she's got to deal with that she is not equipped for. And you know that this isn't going to end well because of all of the, the all of the emotions, the expectations, her outward proje- uh, projection and presentation, and what that will do, and you know, and also how that will come back into her home life and the relationship with her mum and the conflict that that will create. So I think even just from the opening scene where she wakes up in this bedroom surrounded by fluffy teddies and everything's pink, you immediately feel uncomfortable and you just want to scoop her up and go, "Oh, you poor thing," and. I don't know whether or not this is because you're given the perspective of, um, you know, a vulnerable female. And then in in uh, Eternal Sunshine, you're given a perspective from a man, from a vulnerable man. And I don't know whether or not, you know, we're geared up to, to empathize slightly more with perhaps the vulnerable female than the vulnerable man. Um, but I think it takes a while to appreciate the vulnerability that Joel is in. Uh, and empathize with why he's struggling because it's you you do start at the end and it makes sense when you get to when you realize it and I don't know when you guys all realized it as a moment when she said she dinged his car I was like oh hang on a second we've already seen the end and then I started to piece together the colors and you know what that signified and that I think then I started to empathize for him but that wasn't really until the you know sort of the top of the the second act and that's quite late to start investing in your protagonist. So from those two opening scenes, the powerful smack in the face of what Nina's, you know, how Nina gets us to empathise with her versus how Joel gets us to empathise with him. Very different. Yeah, I was just reflecting on it, you know, and I, I don't think I felt that same empathy with Nina as I did with Joel and Clementine actually at all when I reflect on it. And I was just trying to think about when you were talking why that was and when that was. And I think it might be about the way of, it might be the world, you know, because with Nina, even though she's in a, you know, a difficult place, she's also in a fairly, you know, she's in a, she lives in a bubble in a way, you know, there's, it's a fairly sort of privileged and inverted commas, you know, kind of world Whereas I think, so so I probably, it probably took me a while to, and I also felt I was a bit, you know, it's a bit, you know, she was just constantly unhappy. And I know that's a really terrible thing to say, isn't it? Because it doesn't matter whether a character is unhappy all the time, but I found it just harder to connect with her than I did with Joel and Clementine equally. And I don't know whether it was because, Right from that opening scene, you can see with that opening scene, or when they're on the on the train, the train, the bus, the train, yeah, the train. Um, they, you can see the frailties of both characters really clearly. Like they're both, you know, they're both unusual characters, and so you kind of, and I don't know. I think probably I connected, I felt a connection with them both, pretty much straight away, and I I liked the fact that I was immediately engaged with the fact that neither of them were you know they were both coming from really unique perspectives as characters and you could see there was something that that was going to potentially you know connect them but I felt an immediate sense of empathy with both which is unusual isn't it Mm. whereas you were the other way I was the other way and I I I, I wonder if it's because 
I I actually found the 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 structure of Eternal Sunshine for me felt more like a stage play than it did a screenplay. It wasn't very dramatic in its action, I think. And Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There was a lot of verbal storytelling that happened, whereas with Black Swan, there was so much to interpret and infer. And when you when you leave that much room for your imagination to fill the gaps, you are immediately empathising. You are connecting with that story. But when you're being told it all, you have to build that trust in that relationship. And you have to do that on stage because you're limited by your staging options. So it is a very dialogue heavy. And I I think I think it just took me longer to warm up to the idea. I think once we got to the halfway mark, we were completely in Joel's head. Everything started to become slightly quicker paced. The, the scenes were much more interesting and engaging. There was a lot more interpretation to understand about, you know, this this just really abstract environment and the way that they use the the dark and the light to kind of tour us around his memories I I thought it was brilliant Mm. but leading up to Mm. that midpoint was a bit of a slog I'll be honest isn't that interesting see I'm just thinking and I think that it was the characterization of both that made me connect with John Clementine a bit more whereas I didn't feel the character of Nina gripped me enough um, from the beginning and i and I don't know when I became gripped, or I don't know if I was ever hugely gripped, if I'm really honest. You know, and I don't think I was definitely not as I was definitely not as invested with Nina through the whole piece as I was with Joel and Clementine for sure. And I think it was about their characters. I think there was something about them. Maybe it was the grittiness, maybe it was the sort of imperfection of them. That I that I connected with, I don't know, but there was something going on there that I found much more engaging. I'm going to think on that though, because it's really fascinating, isn't it, to think about? And I thought your point about the stage play, it's really fascinating. Maybe it is about that, but you know, and I'm not usually one for like you know, I'm not really into over dialogue, and I'm certainly not into you know exposition and things like that. It wasn't. It, it's. I think it was something something more fundamental but anyway i shall i shall reconsider and revert in a later podcast (laughs) anyway we have sort of gone off the topic a bit here we're talking about eternal sunshine so let's have a look about let's have a chat about the idea of um oh what should we talk about with joel and clementine let's have a look at the idea of memory and the and the because this is something that is really fundamental to this story, isn't it? And the concept of memory and its role in their relationship. And you know, I know you talked a little bit at the beginning about this idea of sort of there's something bigger than memory between them. Um, 
talk to me a little bit about the lover archetype and this idea about how, you know, is there, is there a connection between the idea of memory and how we remember love? Is there something in there that reflects on the archetype, do you think? Um, I mean, his memories are unreliable. They, you know, as memories are by default. And they're also only from his perspective. So we've we've got the 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 sort of the the relationship plays out through his perspective. And it's actually quite a balanced view. And um I think if I was if I was giving notes on this script, I would probably refer to something like um uh the that amazing TV show The Affair. Have you seen that? Yeah. So, you know, it shows not every scene, but most scenes from the perspective of from the man and then from the woman. And the difference in them is brilliant. It's just so good. So sort of remembering that this is his perspective and just how, you know, balanced and reasonable Clementine comes across in each of these scenes makes me question you know the how genuine this this memory actually is it feels more like a flashback than a memory and there's a big difference between the two and I think that from a screenwriting point of view understanding that difference and knowing which one you want to tell is it a memory from a perspective or a flashback from the audience so um, I, I think that that's that's something that's really important to define um, but yeah, once he once he decides he doesn't want to forget her, he does start to tap into the more vulnerable sides of himself, of his vulnerable thoughts. And he exposes her or the memory of her to the darkest parts of himself. So he's he's being vulnerable, but it's a safe vulnerable because it's not really Clementine. It's his remember it's his remembered version of her. And uh, that is what she wanted from him. So in this this is also what he needed for the relationship to survive. It's quite key. So he kind of, he gets what he wants in the end. He gets uh, Clementine back because he recognises the need, which is to, to to sort of be present in those memories and be okay with them, which is something he does in that last scene. He says he's quite happy to, um, you know, to just be in the moment. He's not in it. He doesn't want to run away anymore. He just wants to enjoy the moment. So I, I think in this particular example the memory is quite key uh, I mean it takes up a good good half of the film um mm. yeah and it's interesting that I think memory and perception are really strong in both of these films aren't, aren't they so you know and the idea of and I don't know how necessarily strong that connection is to the lover archetype per se but certainly in you know the perception of the truth and the memory of the truth are really fascinating, um, fascinating sort of uh, things to consider anyway, and really powerful in storytelling. And particularly through stories like these, which are really intense, perception and memory are really important in those sorts of in those sorts of ways. So yeah, really interesting. Um, okay, so so what role do you think the concept of sacrifice plays in this screenplay? And and how do you think that it, it relates to the lover archetype? And we've talked a little bit about sacrifice being one of the components of the lover. So how do you think it works in this film? I'm I wasn't sure that it does actually in this particular example, because this is about escapism, it's about avoidance of the pain that naturally comes with a failed relationship. And the unwillingness to feel that pain and learn from it 
is what will mean that when they meet again, other you know, because if they if they don't face that, if they haven't avoided it, then when they meet again, they're just going to have the same flaws, nothing's going to change, and it will ultimately break up again. So I think the sacrifice only really comes when he brings the memory of Clementine into his past, which makes him vulnerable, exposing him to a pain and he needs to arc. But of course, all of that's in his mind and that doesn't, he's not going to remember that he's done that. So being self-aware on that spiritual level that he needs to change. And he, he does that in the midpoint when he decides that he wants to keep Clementine in his life and he starts to narrate his feelings profusely. But it's not till Mary releases all of those tapes and they understand the process they've been on. And perhaps because they have undergone some kind of uh, unconscious change, when they hear themselves before, they can reflect on how they feel now, having gone through a change that they're not self-aware of. So um, it's kind of like, I, I, I think because the sacrifice happens in his mind that he's not aware of, um, really, I kind of don't feel like it counts, maybe. I'm not sure. Happy to mm. be contradicted. So maybe, so do you think it's less that they... Because I was just trying to think, well, what sacrifices did Clementine make, if any? and Or, or is it the case, do you think, that they just had, that they, that they just had character development? They just, they changed rather than sacrificed? Yeah, because... Do you think it's more that? I think, you know, sort of what comes out of this really is, is commitment. It's a willing to work through their flaws. And that includes vulnerability and sensitivity towards the vulnerability in each other. So I don't necessarily think there's a there's an element of sacrifice because I don't I don't think any one of them has given something up but there is a commitment that and uh, an empathy towards one another about the vulnerability that they are expressing that will make this relationship a success and I don't I don't know about you but I, I mean I only watched it the other day but I can't quite I didn't feel like the ending was a definite solid, yes, we are together. It was a, yes, we're going to see how this goes, which is, a, I think, as we talked about probably in our last um, episode that we did together, um, that that is a stronger ending to any romantic story, is the idea that, yes, we will see where this goes, rather than a, yes, let's get married, you know. Mm. But in interesting, in a way, because on on the one hand there's this question, but on the other there's a really clear sense that there is something bigger than the both of them here. So again, that idea about sort of fate or providence, providence or whatever it is, you know, serendipity, whatever. So there's a real sense of that, and I think that's one of the the things that that is enjoyable about the film is for anybody who feels that sense of or has that longing, because that's one of the attributes as well, isn't it? That longing to connect to feel like, oh, you know, maybe there is something that's a bit bigger than the frailties of us that draws you to someone that creates that inevitability and all those lovely things that we like to feel about romantic love. But yet it still has this question at the end, which, yeah, I don't know. So I think I came away thinking, yeah, there's a maybe, but I felt I'd definitely be putting money on it if it was a betting situation. You know, I'd be saying, I'm pretty sure they're going to be, this is going to be a good thing. You know, you know what I mean? It kind of came out with that sense of, I felt pretty certain about them, even though it was, it was not quite articulated that clearly. So yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe you're right. Maybe it's just about growth rather than sacrifice in that, 
in that particular instance. I think that that makes a lot of sense. So then sort of finally, I guess, uh, let's chat a little bit about how how do you think the lover archetype in this film affects the interactions and the relationships between the other characters in this story? Because there's some really interesting other characters in this story, isn't mm-hmm. there? Yeah, and there's a whole lot of unprofessionalism that goes on in that company. There's no <laughs> a way. A whole I would lot. That's me. Oh, how many violations? I mean, I have to say. <laughs> well, exactly. But even still, even in the first instance, you know, if you go into someone's place and they put you in a bed, yeah. this weird thing on your head, like you'd be, you'd be wanting to see past case studies, wouldn't you? Like <laughs> yeah. you'd want to know. <laughs> other people that have gone so, through it it was yeah it was really like he really they you know he really um they stretched the boundaries there yeah my goodness <laughs> yeah, exactly. um yes yeah. I, th- I think I think I thought there was actually a little bit of a theme of obsession that sort of rippled through this these relationships and that there, there was a lot of chasing of unrealistic connections you know like with Mary with Howard you know uh, the, the doctor and Patrick just obsessing over Clementine and I guess emotionally, the way that Joel sort of becomes to, you know, comes to obsess over Clementine himself. And that is an idealization. And there's a deep desire for connection and it's intense. So, you know, that that absolutely plays into the archetype in those ways. But Mary's role is probably what's really interesting because it's it she is the key that sets all of that truth free and allows Clementine and Joel to be together in possession of the truth and it's the final shove that he needs to arc um and patrick is also very useful because he's not only there to give us that black mirror moment of the sinister dystopia you know that he's going to steal his girlfriend by steal his identity um, (laughs) but he shows us that clementine isn't operating on a spiritual level that she is operating on a spiritual level with joel just like he is with her so it's not a one-sided oh joel doesn't want to end the relationship he wants her back but what if she's moved on and we're not we're certain that she's not happy and that she's still pining after him because she wants to go back to Montauk and she wants to engage, like she doesn't want to engage with Patrick in the same situations that he's trying to, you know, um, to, to construct. So I, I think that's that's actually really telling. So those two characters are the, are the only sub-characters, I think, that are of any worth in this story. I think they're very interesting. Mm, I agree. And I did like the Mary Howard storyline actually in that there was it because really it was the truth of that that pushed Mary to release the truth for everyone else right which was great and I I liked the fact that there was it was an interesting little parallel universe going on there but actually that was what drove the that pushed the plot along even though it didn't come in until quite you know quite near towards the end but it was it was great, and I, I I liked all the characters. I thought they were all really. I thought it was very convincing how weird and quirky and nuts they were. Although, as I said, I couldn't understand how anyone would have, uh, you know, <laughs> happily, yeah, hired them to do that type of therapy on them. It was like, whoa, okay, yeah. that's nuts. But it kind of was very much in keeping with the tone of the film, and which which was great that it had this kind of weird quirkiness that almost is like being John Malkovich kind of absurdity to it which was was nice so it stopped us from getting too 
deep into the truth. It, it was really easy to, you know, willingly suspend our disbelief of the story because there was this kind of craziness, which which was nice. It, it provided a a weird lightness to something that was was actually really, you know, if, you know, if you look at just the Patrick storyline and, yeah, the dystopian idea of somebody comes and steals your identity essentially pretends to be you um, or or everything about you or your attributes um, was, yeah, was was particularly potentially troubling. So, you know, um, yeah, so anyway, I, I liked that. I liked those characters a lot. They were great. I think that right, the, so, the, the only other thing I'd say on. about this film is, yeah. is the use of colour to depict where you are in a memory and where the characters are in the memories was really clever and I... It, hadn't really realized until I'd watched both of the films that you know they'd leaned on color quite heavily um to depict the emotional states of the characters um and the you know we had orange for before the memory wipe and blue for after and once you see it you can't unsee it it's just everywhere and in those final scenes there is a clash of orange and blue it's in conflict and it's pushing its way through and I wondered if there was a bit of a reference that we could pull here from the film Inside Out and there's a similar message that comes through that you need to balance that joy and that sadness and that there is that duality in the way that we remember things and how that impacts on how we engage in real relationships, not just romantic ones. But if you think about like the childhood memories and how they were formed mostly around maternal love and friendships and, you know, again, those colours coming into play. And um, yeah, I just I thought it was use of colour in this film as well as Black Swan, but in particular in this film, um, was really good and it was very grounding and benchmarking and uh, if you if you missed it the first time go back and rewatch it because it's it's very clever how they use it yeah and I think that's a good point isn't it because I think I don't think I was particularly attentive to it when I first saw it but you're right once you get it you it it literally colors the way you see that movie like it you know you you look at it again and it's got almost like a different narrative because you're you're straight away threading things together that you, you know, you get a, you get the jump on on the on the narrative if you like, rather than just looking at kind of wash over yeah. you if you're not um, particularly aware of it. So, and this subtle deletion of 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 stuff, you know, that scene in the library where every camera angle there's less stuff in it. It's becoming blanker yeah. and blanker and blanker. Yeah. I mean, that must have been so much fun to do, but yeah, yeah it was and- really good. Yeah, and really exacting. You think, gosh, the continuity person must have been <laughs> had a nightmare. Terrible. <laughs> oh my god, what way are we going? Yeah, but it was great. It was really, really fun to watch. Um, okay, on that note, um, thank you so much for this quite lengthy chat about uh, the Lover Archetype. Really good to chat, and two fascinating films. So thank you for bringing those very unusual films to the table. I really enjoyed talking about them equally um and thank you to everybody who is listening today if you have not already please like um, or share and subscribe to the script department and all of our podcasts we'd love to have you as part of our membership base and now you can even join on our patreon or patron depending on however you'd like to pronounce that program which you'll hear about more uh, at the end of this uh, podcast thanks again and if you want to check out what our global group of screenwriters are up to you can check out scriptdepartment.net and you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts thanks again see you soon